Travelling north of Auckland for about 30 minutes, we come to Matakana. And in this episode of the New Zealand Wine Podcast, we're talking with Toby Gilman. Kia ora and welcome. Thanks for joining us. We recorded on site at the Gilman Vineyard with Toby as he talks about his family's journey into winemaking. If you'd like to learn more, go to gilmanvineyard.co.nz or check out the New Zealand Wine Podcasts online. Right now, let's go have a chat with Toby. So thanks, Toby. Thanks for having us here. Lovely to be here. Not good to see you. Yeah. And uh, so how did how did this come about for you? So uh, a concept of yours or your family or how did that? Well, my father and I got involved in the wine industry through Jim Vilditch of Providence. Mm-hmm. So um, we met Jim uh, just as his first vineyard in Tibetan was starting to fall apart. Uh that would have been 89. Uh, and then he started from scratch, essentially, uh, with the Providence Vineyard. Yep. Uh, we volunteered. Uh, my father actually helped out with my sister at uh, Tibidian Vintage in 89. That's the wine that became the receivership property, unfortunately, that year. Um, yep. and I missed out that for some reason, which I can't remember. Uh, but in 1990, when Jim started planting, uh, my father and I went up to just volunteer to to help out. Mm-hmm. So you're already, you're already here on this? No, 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 no. My father was still practicing medicine at the time. I just started university. Oh, okay. Um, Back in Auckland? Or? Yeah, yeah. Right, okay. Uh, yeah, so we just helped out. There was a bunch of other people there. Um, and I just kept turning up. Mm-hmm. Got sucked into it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a bit of a dangerous game that way. Um, so I spent probably nearly every weekend for the next decade or so uh, helping out and just oh, getting okay. more and more involved. Right, right. Um, and my father as well. He'd also come up and and uh, come up with various jobs. And mm-hmm. you know, we both enjoyed wine. We weren't uh, at all uh, expert on wine. Um, very keen amateurs. Uh, learned a lot. You know, not only the wine making. I mean, Jim had one of the best sellers in New Zealand, probably as well for especially for old. Old Bordeaux, right, right. Um, which is quite a hard thing to do back back in the day. Um, mm. There's very little wine available brought into New Zealand. Um, so, yeah, the usual day you'd go up first thing in the morning. There'd often be four or five of us crammed into a tiny Ford Escort. Um, and we'd come up, we'd work all day at the vineyard, come back to Glenfield, Jim's place in Glenfield, because um, there wasn't anywhere at the, at the Providence at the time in terms of buildings or anything, mm-hmm. uh, and had dinner, have wine, um, and you know some of these fantastic wines, old wines that otherwise I never would have got a chance to try. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's quite addictive. So uh, at some point, my father retired from medicine. Um, my mother decided that uh, he needed to be kept busy because you get that syndrome with old doctors. They yes. retire and then play yeah. a few rounds of golf and then yeah. drop dead two weeks later. Yeah. Uh, so it was actually her idea to move up here. Um, we started looking for land, uh, and that took probably about... That would have been '96 or so, and we spent about two years before we found this site. Mm-hmm. Um, with a bit of input from Jim, he helped helped us look at the cess places as well. Okay, so you were definitely looking for land to grow. To, yeah, to, yeah, it had to, to be, to had to be, yeah. it had to be somewhere that had a similar kind of potential as Providence. Mm-hmm. So it was very important that the aspect, the mm-hmm. soil type, yeah, um, and getting all those those. Um, uh, factors in place in the same site turned out to be a lot more difficult than we thought. Mm-hmm. Um, 
eventually stopped looking. We, we looked at everything that was on the market and there was nothing there. So we, we were just driving around, my father and I. Um, stop it. And suitable looking north facing slope, jump out of the car with a post hole borer, dig a few holes, and if it looked suitable, we'd approach the farmer. Right. Um, <laughs> this is why we're digging holes on you. Well, yeah, it? yeah. We, we wouldn't bother <laughs> approaching them if, the, if, the, if, the, if it seemed like wet and heavy clay. Um, but even then, you know, you would go, come back with a, if they were keen, we'd come back with a digger and go down three meters. Um, and often you wouldn't, you'd start to hit that sticky, wet stuff. Right. Which is what we wanted. So we'd start from scratch. Um, yeah, so it was about, um, oh, so it would be 95 we started looking. And then we probably found this place at the end of 96, but it, was, it was, wasn't, it was just part of a farm. Um, so we approached the farmer and basically told him he might be getting extra title for this little corner of his farm. Um, and that took another probably a year and a half to go through council. Mm-hmm. And then planted and uh, would have been July, August 98. And uh, Cab Franc? Yeah, so yeah. so Jim hadn't planted Cabernet Franc at Antipodean. It was only at Providence that he first had Franc. So it's a Merlot Franc blend. Um, but we did a little facetious exercise on the side. We have a Cheval, had a barrel of Cheval Blanc blend. It was two-thirds Cabernet Franc, which was meant to be for the workers. I think it wound up being sold to Germany in the end. It, it was quite popular. Um, and I always preferred, I mean, it was just, that was my favourite wine. The, the Cabernet Franc, you could get ripe, ripe and reliably, unlike Cabernet Sauvignon, which is what Jim found at, at Providence. Um, but it has more character, I think, than Merlot. Mm-hmm. More of that, that classic Cabernet character. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I say, you, you, even in a cool year, it, it still ripens reliably. And I just like the flavours of, of Cabernet Franc. So, and at the time, uh, there wasn't a lot out there. So when we tried to distinguish ourselves a bit from Providence and um, as far as I'm aware, we were the first vineyard to basically specialise in Cabernet Franc. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously it's a, it's a great it's a great blend. It's relatively rare in Bordeaux as well, but it's... Um, as, as a predominant... Yeah, I mean, you've got Cheval Blanc, the obvious one. Yeah. Um, Angelouse, where I spent a, a season working, they were close 50-50, mm-hmm. and there's a few others like that. Um, 50-50 with? With Cabernet Franc with Merlot. Merlot. Uh, mm-hmm. It's probably like 55 Merlot, 45 Cabernet Franc. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm not sure what it, is, what it stands now. Uh, there's more going in in Bordeaux, apparently. They've had real problems with these hot years we've had with the sugar levels in the Merlot going through the roof, um, alcohol levels going too high, whereas Cabernet Franc can handle that, that sort of variation okay. a bit more. So you'll see more of it going in Bordeaux, I think. Mm. It won't be quite the rarity it is mm, at the okay. moment, but it certainly suits this area. Um, it's, it, I, I rank it as the best grape in this area. Um, it's really between the Bordeaux varieties and Syrah, mm-hmm. but I think it's it can handle the adverse weather better than Syrah. Right. So a little bit of Merlot as well. Yeah, to round it out. Yeah. You don't need it so much in New Zealand. I, I've heard the same comment from other winemakers. We've found that. Uh, so Merlot is usually there in, in Bordeaux yep. to round out the Cabernet, give it a bit of flesh, mm. bit of body. Mm. Um, whereas the Cabernets, so certainly the Cabernet Franc in New Zealand, tend to be fuller and rounder anyway. Right, okay. Uh, but less linear than, than they are in Bordeaux. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually the Cabernet Franc is already quite fat and round. Uh, so actually over time I'll, I'll increase a portion of Franc and decrease the Merlot over time but it still adds an extra element mm-hmm. that you're not getting mm-hmm. from the from the Cabernet and anything else you have and a tiny bit of Melbeck 
right. It goes okay. in the blend, which I'll probably increase over time as well, but right. it'll always be a, a small part of the blend. And wh- what does that do for you, that Malbec? Well, traditionally it's there for, for colour, for structure. You get quite good tannins out of the, mm-hmm. out of the Malbec. I, I like the, um, has a distinctive nose. It just has, again, another dimension. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a tricky grape. It's, it's, it doesn't like wet weather. You can, you can get hammered in a wet year. So you would never rely on it. Mm. Uh, but as an extra sort of component, extra dimension in the wine, it's, mm. it's worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you just did you did you finish your studies? At, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, there's a brief period of time I discussed. I thought about going into um, winemaking as a career, mm. uh, going back and doing a, a winemaking course. Um, but I very quickly realised that if I did that, I would be making wine for someone else my whole life um, you kind of need another source of income if you're going to establish your own vineyard mm-hmm. I mean there's a few winemakers who have done very well and can and can you know you come crop as the world have who've got the, the resources to do their own wine but mm-hmm. otherwise you're just reliant on a on a salary and it's, it's hard to do your own thing mm-hmm. so yes I, I, I finished my commerce degree and, and now I'm an accountant so that's that's the day job during the week right, winemaking right, okay. in the weekend okay all right, so this is this is the the weekend job for you, working on the working on the winery and the, yeah, yeah, and the and the vineyard, yeah. And you're involved in the whole process. Yeah, like start to finish. Helping along the way, but you're you're sort of involved right from the yeah, we do everything ourselves. I mean, obviously, and uh, my father helps out. And he's mm-hmm. you know on the track doing the mowing and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, all the vineyard work, all the winery work, we do everything on site. Mm-hmm. I'd say ninety percent of the work is in the vineyard, ten percent in the in the winery. Right. Okay. Mm. Okay, so pr- pretty much you 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 take what you get for that year, and that's what you bottle. Sort of Essentially, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. A, basically a, a field blend. I mean, some years we've actually co-fermented everything, especially mm-hmm. if it's a very small crop. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, it's the the Merlot Malbec goes in one vat, the Cabernet Franc goes another. It all gets blended up in the end, but it's quite nice to to see how they develop in the barrel separately. Yeah. Um, and gives gives you a better idea you know, in the future what what's working and what what we'll do as we extend our planning yeah um but it all goes up unless you've got a significant variation between one pick and the next it's always going to be of pretty similar quality and it's going to be blended together yeah yeah and it varies obviously with the seasons um you'll get a slightly heavier crop of you know franc one year compared to the other um or you might say you might lose your malbec for adverse conditions um so it varies in that respect, but otherwise it's fairly close, close related to the planting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, what about in the in the winemaking process itself? Is there anything, any particular way you like to do that, or is it, that's evolved for you? You think works best with with, with the uh, with the product that you get off the off the vines? Well, we're fairly old fashioned. Right. I'm fairly conservative in that respect. Um, uh, so as long as it's been used for a long time, I, I, I don't know. I have a bias towards doing things, I guess, the hard way. It feels like you're cheating if you're doing it the easy way. Um, but we, we're we using fairly uh, old school techniques. I suppose a lot of the winemaking techniques we're using are probably closer to Burgundy than Bordeaux just because of the size we are, mm-hmm. which is probably true of a lot of New Zealand wine, wineries, actually, even you know, relatively larger ones compared to Bordeaux. There's still you know, that 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 level of wine making it um, at that scale is quite rare in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Even if you look at these first growths, fifteen twenty thousand cases a year. Um, 
so they're now making wine and big closed tanks pumping over that kind of thing whereas we're making wine in small tanks with plunging mm-hmm. um, and that gives the wine a bit of a different character which you see a lot in Burgundy because they're just very small holdings in Burgundy um, okay. but Bordeaux is quite even at the high end is quite industrial right yeah and um, anything that's changed for you in that process over you know that you've learnt over the uh, well I've certainly learned a few things yeah if something's worth doing, it's worth doing twice, I found. Right. You, you, a lot of <laughs> wrong turns. Yeah. Um, but we're pretty happy. We from, right from the start, we we're pretty happy how things were going mm-hmm. um, with the, the character of the wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a few things that that I've tried out and then gone back. Um, there isn't anything really different from what we're doing now, from what we started. Mm-hmm. Like I say, there's a few departures that we've, we've reversed. Probably more uh, changed in the vineyard than in the winery as such. Mm-hmm. Um, so especially adapting our pruning and stuff over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, nothing radical, but just 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 more experience and uh, some different perspectives on, on how to prune the vines. Yep. Um, I don't think what has, what has really changed over the time. One of the few changes, so we've probably... Uh, trying to keep the wine a bit more structured, a bit more re- using a bit more, I'd say, reductive winemaking techniques. Okay. So just keeping the air away from a bit more than mm-hmm. maybe we were at the start. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things we have changed uh, in terms of the barrel regime. So we started 100% new oak. Uh, we're now about 50% new oak. I find that that second-hand oak is slightly different character than you're getting from the new oak. Um, and the other thing we changed is in 2006, we got our barrels delivered and they actually delivered the wrong model. They delivered, we'd been using Bordeaux barrels and they delivered Burgundy barrels, mm-hmm. which I sent back, but I kept a couple uh, to see how they'd go, just out of curiosity. And that really seemed to suit our style of wine because we're going for a more elegant Less full-on style of wine. Um, so, what does that mean? A, a, a burgundy barrel compared to a they're a slightly different shape. Mm-hmm. They're they're pretty much exactly the same size, but they're they're but the main difference is is they use. I mean, the, the difference in the forest they get the wood from as well. Mm-hmm. But I think I mean that's a fairly subtle distinction. But the the staves of the barrel are thicker. Oh, okay. Like about five mil thicker, so you right. get less air coming through. Mm-hmm. The barrel, so it slows the evolution of the, the wine. Sorry, in the burgundy ones, yeah, the yeah, yeah, ones, they're, yeah, they're thicker. Um, and so, yeah, so the wine seems to evolve it more slowly, uh, retains a bit more structure. Mm. There also seems to be less noticeable um, oak extract, so less mm-hmm. oakiness, if mm-hmm. you will, mm-hmm. in the wine. So it just retains a bit more elegance. Right. Um, yeah, and it just seemed to really, really suit our our wine. So I've got 100 to to burgundy barrels now. Oh, okay. So that yeah, that that made you move across after experimenting with a couple. Yeah, mm. yeah. Well, it was a mm. happy yeah discovery. Yeah, <laughs> as things often are. And you do the whole process here, so um, all the way through to to bottling and labelling, and yep. it's all done on premise. Yep. Yep, on a very small scale, which yeah. doesn't make a lot of sense economically, I have to say. Uh, but it's the only way you can really keep control of everything. Yeah. Um, and then you just have to find a way of doing it to scale. Uh, I've got a lot of old equipment from Provenance's Jim's upgrade his equipment I've I've taken uh, some stuff second hand the press and the mm-hmm. uh, destemmer and that kind of thing mm-hmm. um, 
so that that's helped out. Mm. Um, and yeah, so you you, you can't your standard winemaking equipment is like designed for usually you know ten, twenty, hundred thousand cases. We we're making between one hundred and two hundred. Right. So yep. yeah, so unfortunately, it's a, it's a it was quite a big investment to get everything set up, mm. but. Uh, now that it's all working, it's, um, mm. I think it's paid off. And and uh, how are people? How do people find your wine? Is it uh, online or and and or are you in restaurants or how does that? Um... Yeah, we've always we've always pushed our wine in restaurants um, right from the beginning mm-hmm. um, to trying to get into the right restaurants. Uh, so there'll be that, that's that's you know, I mean obviously you're selling some wine, but it's a good showcase for your wine as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to say, I mean, there's. I think it's word of mouth is most of it. I mean, we're so small, mm. um, and it's quite tricky to get a high profile. We've we've had reasonable press given our size. Mm. Um, so now I'd say a third of our wine is is sold direct from the vineyard mm-hmm. to to people who take a case every year. Yep, um, and probably a third is going through distributors, mostly to restaurants. Uh, it's a little bit of retail, but it's mostly restaurants, and then the other third is probably going to Hong Kong. Oh, okay. Okay, so you've built a relationship up into Hong Kong. Uh, yeah, I got approached by essentially a Kiwi guy up there. Yep, um, John, who um, who's been there for I think thirty five years and was looking at he's, he's interested in New Zealand wine. He's bringing New Zealand wine in, uh, New Zealand wines into to sell into Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he had just come across us in the Michael Cooper's. Um, uh, yeah. New Zealand Reviews. guide wine, uh, guide yeah. to wine, yeah. um, and so approached us, and wine obviously showed well, and and we were the kind of you know, he's looking for boutique. Mm-hmm. You can't get much more boutique than us. Uh, yes, yeah, so that's that's worked out well. Mm. I mean, Hong Kong's practically local mm. if you're a New Zealand producer mm. compared to say the UK. Right. Yeah. So yeah, not not too much of a headache to get it up there. No, it was like mm. a merely yeah a mere. Ten and a half, eleven hour flight. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. One flight. Yeah, yeah. No changeovers. Yeah. Um, so that's been going on for about three years now. Okay. Um, good. Yeah, and uh, it's probably more at the stage concentrating on building up that that direct mail because that's obviously the, the the more you can shift to that, the the uh, more attention you can pay to the vines. You're not mm. you're not being diverting resources into marketing and that kind of mm. thing. So. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And is it hard work um, keep you know getting into restaurants and then keeping it there as well? It's cause well, it's yeah. So now we do a distributor because we I did start yep. off doing it myself, but it's the follow up work yep. that really mm. you get into the restaurant successfully mm. enough. But mm. you got to be basically back every few weeks and yeah. checking up on this. Mm. They want to keep low stock levels as much as possible. That's and, right. And someone else will be turning up or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's always someone else been the hard sell on them, and there's yeah. only a limited amount of space on these yeah. lists. Yeah. So, yeah. So now a distributor doing that job for me, mm. and mm. also they can they can cover Wellington as well. Yeah. Which is actually, we probably sell a bit more wine in Wellington to that trade than we do in Auckland. Right, okay. Mm. Mm. And um, a particular favourite food match for you with um, with your wine? It varies, but vintage to vintage, because we, we, we just make the one wine and, and you do get that vintage variation. Um, I mean, it's hard to go past steak or roast beef with red wine. It's hard to go. Yeah, red meat and red wine to go. One of you together. Yeah. Um, if you get a warmer year, like uh, say 2010, where the wine's richer and more powerful, then you, you know, it stand ups to well to 
you know, richer food like duck and that kind of thing as okay, well. So yeah. So you, so but you're you you can't go past a, a good steak with it. Yeah, steak steak or yeah, or, yeah. or wing rib, roast ring wing uh, wing rib. Yeah. Um Yeah, barbecue would be fine. Mm. Mm. But I mean, yeah, um <laughs> we're not uh dogmatic about it. We do try and guess I mean they'll show the wine off, but mm. Yeah, yeah, sure. And um, so it'll keep staying in its current form for you. Um, it's the, a, the vineyard, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it'd be nice to expand. We got we've got room uh, for more vines. Mm-hmm. Um, we're we're planted very close together by New Zealand standards. So there's there's only one and a half acres of vines, but because they're planted so together, it's, it's so close together. It's it's like managing about five acres of commercial vineyard, and I've only got two days a week to do it. Uh, so yeah, it's it keeps me busy, and to expand, I'll need. More time and money, uh, mm. which you know, you can't really have both either. <laughs> I either have yeah. spare time or yeah. I have spare money, but not both. Um, so it'll stay like this for for the next few years. But mm. at some point, I want to I want to extend the planting. Right. Okay. And you got an idea of what that might be? Like more? Oh, it'll still be the same or, blend. Yeah. Uh, like I yep. said, I'll probably increase the proportion of franc over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would I wouldn't mind experimenting in white. That, uh, whether I've got the time to do that, but I, I'm I'm quite keen on white Bordeaux as well, which there isn't a lot of examples in New Zealand. Mm. Um, that that Sauvignon, Sauvignon blend, but yeah, that that, that warmer um, mm-hmm. expression. So uh, I mean, I can think of say Man of War, for example, mm-hmm. to do a reasonable version on Waiheke. Um But yeah, otherwise, it's a fairly rare beast. So I could see myself doing a bit of that. Okay, a bit yeah, of a sideline. You think that would suit the um location well yeah well clearly i mean it's we're we've got a border climate we're more probably don't quite have the ideal soils we're not we're not the gravelly soils you tend to find for the white wines in, in bordeaux mm. but um uh there was actually a bit of sauvignon blanc planted in tibidian back in the day mm-hmm. uh we did try a bottle with jim um i, I think it was in the 91 vintage or something this is a long time ago and it was actually surprisingly good so you can you can do it, and like I say, Waikiki shows you can you can do a reasonable version. Mm. So, mm. it'd be interesting to try. It'll be a bit of fun. Mm. Everyone mm. else is making you know Chardonnay and stuff, so fit in with the um, uniqueness of the Cab Franc blend, wouldn't it? And yeah, well, I say they're they're, yeah. they're grapes that have grown together. Yeah, you know, or at least with a few miles apart in Bordeaux. So. Yeah, and um, we always finish on a, a a question of if you could have a glass of wine with anyone, anywhere, or and you know either living, dead, or someone you think hasn't uh, existed yet which is a <laughs> bit of a stretch what wine would it be and, and who would you who would you want to drink that with I'd probably go the wine groupie route I'd probably be good to share a wine with someone like Christian Mavix or or Francois Tienpont or one of those guys in Bordeaux whose wines I admire right I'll let them supply the wine yeah, <laughs> yeah. but there's always stuff to learn from these guys um, I, I only got uh, the chance to do one vintage over there, um, but there's there's you know, an awful lot still to learn. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, and, and obviously it's more fun drinking wine. I mean, well, it's nice drinking wine with with people you know and with friends, obviously. Yeah. Um, but it's also nice drinking wine with people who really know their wine. Right. Um, yeah. So someone like that can uh, they can bring along the wine. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, well, I'm happy to bring some wine along as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's always nice to try them side by side. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, if they can turn up with a bottle of Petrus or. <laughs> and share their wine I wouldn't say no. yeah. Yeah, 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 that'd be nice. Yeah. 
Oh, thanks, Toby. That's very good. Thanks for having us here. Hey, Oris. Yeah, appreciate it. Good to meet you. Cool. See ya. We've been hearing from Toby Gilman from Gilman Vineyard in Matakana, north of Auckland. If you'd like to find out more, go to gilmanvineyard.co.nz and be sure to check out some of our other New Zealand wine podcasts on our website or download them straight into your podcast app. Thanks for listening in. Hey, corner my bye for now.